You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boats and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord given to our church for our good. Well, I want to begin this morning by giving you a list of five countries, and I want to ask you what you think these nations have in common. Qatar, Vatican City, Liechtenstein, Bhutan, and Saudi Arabia. What do you think these five countries have in common? Well, if your guess is that they have the smallest population in the world, it's a good guess, but you would definitely be wrong as it relates to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The five things these countries have in common is at least according to a couple of websites I was able to find and chat GPT. Uh, these are the five most difficult countries to become citizens of. Some of these countries require 30 years of, con- of consecutive residency, Some of them require you to change your religion. Others of them require you to change your employer. You have to work for the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) Some require a communal vote to approve of you to become a citizen. These are, at least uh, as, as it was found online, five of the hardest nations to become citizens in. Now, why do I share this? Well, last week, you may remember, you might not, Um, We talked about the fact that uh, the way Matthew is recording the life of Jesus, Jesus is just beginning his public ministry in this region called Galilee. This was a a sort of fishing village to the north. It was a a town that was sort of not fully part, uh, strong in this Jewish identity, but also not fully Gentile. It was this mixed area in Israel. And he begins with this very simple sermon, which is essentially what Matthew will be unpacking for the rest of the weeks, uh, for, for, many, for a long time as we study this Gospel of Matthew. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus' first sermon, or at least a summary of that first sermon. And in this passage, we said that uh, Matthew is showing that Jesus has come and he's bringing a kingdom into this world, but it's a kingdom that is, is slightly different than the kingdoms we are used to. We could say that it is a spiritual kingdom, but by saying that, we wouldn't want to say that it's a ghostly kingdom or a fake kingdom or sort of a less real kingdom. It's it's not that it's uh, a a kingdom that has no impact on the physical, but it's something that's even grander than the physical. It's, It's a kingdom that extends into this sort of unseen realm. 
And we said that Jesus was coming in to usher in this particular kingdom, and we used some big words. We said he is, in his ministry, inaugurating that kingdom. But the fullness of the consummation of that kingdom, where all the blessings and joys of that kingdom will, will be something that Jesus will be striving and pushing us towards, moving towards. The kingdom, in a sense, will start to unravel, and one day we will see it and taste it in its fullness. We talked a bit about what the kingdom of heaven is. We said it's this place where God's will and God's rule is perfectly experienced in the effects, uh, the corrupting power of sin, but also the rebellious power of sin is done away with. And people realize that God indeed is the true king. And when Matthew wants you to understand and wrestle through who is Jesus of Nazareth, he doesn't first want you to think of him as a religious guru or teacher, although he's going to show that over and over again. He wants you to wrestle with this. Whoever Jesus is, his job, his mission, his vocation is to usher in this kingdom of heaven on earth that you could experience it now, that the people who interact with him experience it. And last week we wrestled with what type of king Jesus was. We talked about what type of kingdom he wrestles in. And this week I want to continue a theme we picked up last week, which is how do we rightly respond to the kingdom? Maybe a way to look at it is how do we become proper citizens of this kingdom? And this morning what I want to do is look at three things. I want to look at how citizens of the kingdom of heaven are made. Then I want to look at how citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to conduct themselves. And I want to conclude ourselves, our time together by looking at what does the kingdom, what does life in the kingdom of heaven look like? So first let's ask, how are citizens made in the kingdom of heaven? In the kingdom of Bhutan, I, I believe it was that you had to be a consecutive citizen for 20 years. You had to be committed to civic service and good works, and then the king had to give you permission to be a citizen. But what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? How, do you, how are you made a citizen of heaven? Well, let me remind you, Jesus just announced, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is, is breaking into the world through Jesus. And in a sense, what we see in this passage is Jesus calling two sets of brothers to participate in that kingdom, or to, to, be, to be the beginning of the citizenship of that kingdom. He calls these fishermen, and his call is distinct. You see it in verses 18 through 22. He does, you see the same phrase twice. He says, follow me. Now, this is, we're wrestling through this question, how are citizens made? And here we have Jesus calling his first followers, at least in Matthew's gospel, and we have to ask ourselves, how does he make them followers of him? Or how does he usher them into the kingdom of heaven or help them to be citizens of this kingdom? Is it that he sees potential in them? Is it that the kingdom of heaven needs fishermen? And so he wants to start with a very ordinary and common vocation so that everyone has food? No. How are, how are citizens made in the kingdom of heaven? Citizens are made in the kingdom of heaven by the very word of Jesus. By his very word. What he commands he accomplishes. His words set forth and do not return void. Now, it's interesting. Some of you may know this. In Jesus' day, when rabbis wanted, uh, when rabbis sort of had students that wanted to follow after them, they would frequently follow the rabbi altogether. In a sense, uh, the rabbi would have something of an entourage. So they wouldn't necessarily send them off to seminary, although there would be something similar to seminary, but they would follow a rabbi. They would be near this rabbi. They would hear how he answers questions. They'd see how he interacts with other individuals. They'd see how he conducts himself. In a sense, they would have this sort of residency experience and follow this rabbi everywhere they went. And in a sense, Jesus is presenting himself as a rabbi of his day, telling these men to follow him. But what's incredibly unique is that in the day of Jesus, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the way in which 
uh, students would follow a rabbi as they would come to the rabbi and ask for the privilege to sit under the rabbi's feet, to, to sit under the rabbi's teaching. But how does Matthew record Jesus, this great rabbi, collecting this first round of followers? Jesus sort of pushing in and, and, and bringing in these people into the kingdom of heaven and following him towards it. What does he do? He calls them by his very word. The paradigm's reversed. The Gospel of John will say this very clearly. Jesus will say to his disciples, never forget, I chose you. You did not choose me. It's not the other way around. So how are citizens made in the kingdom of heaven? Well, citizens in the kingdom of heaven are made by a royal summons. This is how citizens in the kingdom of heaven are made. Listen, no one, I don't know if anyone else has had the privilege of being called to jury duty, but no one who's sitting around with the other people who were selected for jury duty sits around and trying to make small talk says, oh, what brings you here today, you know? What happened in your heart that made you want to serve this great country by being on a jury? No one asks that. Why not? Because we're all here for the same exact reason. We were summoned. And if we weren't summoned out of the goodness of our heart, you wouldn't find us here. We have other things to do. We have other things preoccupying our time. The reason we're here is someone with authority said, come here. You're on jury duty. What Matthew wants you to see, and I don't think this is a small point. I want you to hear it very, very, very clearly. The reason anyone is a disciple of Jesus, the reason anyone becomes a citizen in this kingdom of heaven, is that you were summoned, you were called upon, and with a greater authority than the authority which calls upon you for jury duty, but you're not called to something that is uh, less than exciting, something that you don't want to see happen, something that you feel is a waste of your time. You're called to something glorious, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, to enter into, some, enter into citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now listen, this is so powerful for us today. And I'm, I'm presuming, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of people who are Christians. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I promise you there's great bearing that this passage has on you. But hear me clearly. I have heard this passage preached over and over and over again in my life. And my instincts when I read it, and the voice I hear in my head from preachers when I hear it, is that I need to be like these first disciples, and I, the focus is all on how I need to follow Jesus like these first disciples. But don't miss what Matthew wants you to see. The same words that brought all the creation you see out of nothing into something. The same words that the prophet Isaiah says, leave God's mouth and never return back void. They always accomplish what they are set out to do. Those words go forth to these disciples, follow me. And these words aren't burdensome commands. They empower what they command. This is how disciples are made. This is how citizens in the kingdom of heaven are made, by the very royal summons, by the word of Christ. Your obedience is an important part of this passage, and we're going to look at that. But never forget, what comes first is a royal summons. And that royal summons, those words as they leave Jesus' mouth, cause these men to do things that would be considered utterly absurd in the day. These words have power. The words of Jesus are effectual in what they set out to accomplish, and nothing can thwart it. Now, what does, difference does this make? Well, listen, if you, feel like, if you feel like your spiritual life has been dull lately, if you feel like you lack passion for Jesus like you once did, my guess is you'll find a blog post, or you'll find a Christian book, or you'll find a friend. And they're going to put you on a training regiment, something like a boot camp. All these things you ought to do that are somehow going to fan that flame inside of you to follow after Christ. And these aren't bad things, okay? 
But Matthew wants you to see. Do you want to know where growth comes in the Christian life? Do you want to know where passion comes from? Do you want to know where when things are dull, they spark to light? Do you want to know where you become the person you couldn't have dreamed you would become? You do things you couldn't imagine doing? Do you want to know where that happens? It happens when you sit and hear the word of Jesus. It happens when the word is preached over you. It happens when you study the word. Things happen that didn't happen before. Out of a darkness and void, an earth is created by this word. My goodness, imagine what it will do when it's set free over your life. There's an important part of this passage about discipleship. Don't get me wrong. We're going to get there. But I don't want you to miss what Matthew wants you to see. At the summon of Jesus, crazy things happen. As his word goes out, things start to change. And it's no different for you today. This is why it's of such utmost importance that we all sit under God's word, myself included. That we all make ourselves students of this word and say, may this word transform us and change us. You know why? Because there is no discipleship boot camp that I can put you through that can change you half as effectively as God's word. In fact, if I'm not careful, I might set you up for a deeper season of despair, a deeper season of disappointment with God by these discipleship resumes. But you know what will never let you down? The word of Christ. And it is working right now in your hearts, and you don't fully understand how it's working, but I assure you this royal summons is going out right now. And God's Spirit is using it powerfully. Sit under God's word. Trust that this is indeed how God works. How are citizens made in the kingdom of heaven? They're made by the effectual royal summons, by the pronouncement of the very word of Jesus. But now let's ask ourselves, how are citizens to conduct themselves in the kingdom of heaven? The passage is sort of nicely divided up. You have this call and response, call and response, and then this summary at the end. And in a sense, uh, the, the way in which citizens are to conduct themselves, we see in verse 20 and verse 22, and how these disciples respond to the summons of King Jesus. What do, they, what do we read? Well, there's one word that stands out. It's, very, very, uh, it's a word that's very common in Mark's gospel, but not as common in Matthew's gospel, and it's this word immediately. Interestingly enough, Peter and Andrew drop their nets. They actually, uh, the Greek word is a different type of net than the nets that are being mended by uh, James and John. So Peter and Andrew are probably of our lower class fishermen, they're fishing from the net, uh, fishing from the shore, sorry, throwing out their nets, dragging them back in, trying to collect fish. James and John are a little bit more wealthy and they fish with two boats, sort of running a dragnet between them throughout the night when the fish can't see the net, sort of hauling them in. But what do we read about both the business owner and the one struggling to make their daily wages? Citizens of this kingdom obey and they obey immediately. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you've never read this Bible before, you might think, well, this is exactly what I was worried about with Christianity, but religion in general. A bunch of sort of mindless, irrational responses to something that just kind of feels right, okay? So you read this story and you think, these fishermen, you know, who probably are living sort of, sort of paycheck to mouth, sort of no, no sort of uh, grand savings plan in their life, this is exactly what I was scared about in religion. It's sort of puts this pressure on you to you make an impulsive decision and sort of upend your life and, and reorient your life. It sounds somewhat irrational. Now, you should be careful thinking that way. We actually have other Gospels of Jesus, and in John's Gospel, we actually find that um, Simon, who's also called Peter in this passage, his brother Andrew, was actually a follower of John the Baptist before he was a follower of Jesus. So Andrew, as he's fishing, he's already been following John the Baptist. And at one point in Andrew's life with John the Baptist, as he's sitting under the preaching of this man, John the Baptist, they see Jesus, and John says in John chapter 1, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Andrew leaves following John the Baptist. 
he goes and gets his brother Peter, and he says, we've found the, the Messiah, the hero, the king of this particular kingdom. He has arrived. And he introduces his brother Peter to Jesus. Now, why am I saying all this? I could, I could drag, drag this point on over and over again. There's a good chance there might even have been a family relationship between James and John and Simon Peter. They certainly were very close together, and their mothers knew each other. Why I say this is this. What you're witnessing here is not necessarily an irrational, sort of impulsive decision to follow after Christ by these men. There's a good chance these men had talked about and thought about the teaching of Jesus, and they were waiting, thinking through what is he going to do? What does it mean that he is indeed the Messiah, the one, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, as John says? What is he up to? They'd been stewing over this and, and wrestling through the Old Testament, as we call it, wrestling through who the Messiah is going to be, and they're wondering, have we found him? Is this him? And so at this point, when he comes into their presence, and he says to them, follow after me, they've already been stewing on this, and they say, absolutely. This is where we want to be. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. We often see this passage as a paradigm for how evangelism works, but I don't know if that's always that helpful. Maybe what we're seeing here, actually, is the ways in which Jesus comes to Christians in their busy and distracted lives, but to Christians who are tangentially also trying to pursue what it means to, to follow properly after God and to be obedient to his kingdom and to know Christ. Maybe what we're witnessing here is a paradigm we will see over and over and over again in the Christian life. Jesus is saying, follow me not to people who don't know, them, know him, but he's saying, follow me to people who do know him but need to know him better. Maybe this is the paradigm that Jesus is calling Christians to unique opportunities right in front of them to opportunities that might cost them as it relates to their assets and their careers and their relationship. He's calling them to do things that on the surface might seem crazy. But maybe this is the paradigm this passage is telling us we should expect in our life with God. That it's not the fact that we don't know Jesus that he comes to us and says, follow me. But as we get to know him and we get to know him better, we shouldn't be surprised to hear him at times tap us on the shoulder and very clearly say to us, right now is the time. Follow me. I have something special for you to do. It might not always be as extraordinary as leaving our vocation and following after Jesus. It might be incredibly ordinary. He might tap you on the shoulders and say, I need you to put your career on hold to take care of your child during this particular season. Something in one sense that comes across incredibly ordinary. But maybe this is the paradigm of what it means to follow after Jesus. He knows as you get to know him, he taps you on the shoulders and says, follow me more deeply. This is how citizens of this kingdom are to conduct themselves, though, to have ears open to this and be willing to immediately follow him. Now, why am I saying this? Let me say it this way. There's at least a unique element and a common element to this call that goes out to these four fishermen. One, there's a unique element because these four men are fishermen, and that's no accident. And I don't have time to develop this argument much better, but for those who are curious, if you flip over to Jeremiah 16, 16, you'll find that it is no accident that these first followers of Jesus, these first sort of uh, the, the citizens which are going to hold prominent positions in this kingdom, that they're fishermen. The Lord had promised through the prophet Jeremiah that one day, he would restore Israel, God's people, back to their glory. And the way he was going to do that is, though he had judged them and scattered them all over the earth, he was going to send fishermen, and they were going to cast their nets and bring them back into the fold to be part of the people of God again. It's no accident that these men are fishermen, and now Jesus is saying to them, I will make you fishers of people. 
You're going to be part of this plan God has said from times of old of restoring the glory of what it means to God's people again. Breaking back in God's people, bringing them back in together. Tasting and experiencing God's kingdom in a unique and special way. So there's a unique calling that comes to them. And we do know that at this particular season, there's such a clear inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven because of the arrival of Jesus that Jesus' calling to them is unique. Leave your vocations. There's a unique opportunity in front of you. And we know these four men will become the, what we'll call the apostles, the sort of this foundation upon which the church as we know it will be built up. There's a unique element to their calling, but there's also a very common element to their calling because Matthew's gospel later on in chapter 16, we will read Jesus saying all of his disciples are to take up their cross and to follow him. This doesn't mean all of you need to change your careers, although some might need to, and you might need to today. It doesn't mean that all of you need to sort of uh, at great expense to yourself, sort of surrender all your assets and disappear. It might, but not often the case. What it means is this, though, that to live rightly in this kingdom, you have to be willing, and you have to see that all belongs to him. Everything is under his authority. Everything's at his disposal. Your career, your assets, your social standing. This is what it means to live rightly in this kingdom. It's all open-handed. He can take, he can call you to do something else. This is the case. It's not just, though, that all, he has authority over all things. It's that all things are to be used to advance his particular mission, that you're to join him in his mission. And again, in this case, fishermen are being called to join him in becoming fishers of people, this sort of play on words. Well, you're, you're called to be a person who champions and lives out the values and virtues of this kingdom, who embody what we're going to read in the Sermon on the Mount for the next couple of weeks. This doesn't just mean that you'll be an evangelist. It means you will obey and follow Jesus in both word and deed, though. You will say his kingdom is a good kingdom. And so because of that, I will live with the ethic he puts forward in this Sermon on the Mount. I will be a person who embodies this teaching in my life and in the way I live and in my generosity and in my forgiveness and in my willingness to, uh, to deal with bitterness. But more importantly, what this passage is telling us is that citizens of the kingdom, the way they conduct themselves are this, that they're with Jesus. And it's that simple. You know, it's quite interesting to think about it. If we think about a hero, a sort of prototypical hero, this sort of example of, of a savior, of a rescuer, don't we often think of a loner? A person who is so much greater than everybody else that they kind of become dis, 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 you know, disconnected from community. They don't fit in with community the same way they did anymore. And they sort of carry themselves a little bit higher than everybody else, you know, a little bit more put together, a little bit stronger. You know, from this point on, Till the end of Jesus' ministry when they abandon him, everything you read Jesus doing, they will be there or nearby. He will always be with these men. And this is part of how citizens of the kingdom are to conduct themselves. They are with Jesus. They are following Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. And when they hear that tap on the shoulder for the first time or the hundredth time, follow me. I have something I need you to do here. They obey immediately. This is how they conduct themselves. Now, maybe I could illustrate it this way. Every culture, no matter what your background is and no matter who you are, every one of you, and, and myself included, believe that life is sort of uh, panning out on some sort of uh, grid. It's sort of moving along uh, sequentially. And we're living our lives sort of on a graph. And I can look each one of you in the eyes. I could sit with you and I could say, 
Uh, what is at the end of the, the graph? What is up and to the right in your life? What does that mean? It could mean financial success. It could mean status in society and injured guild. It could mean comfort and, and, and disposable income. Um, but there is something that as time progresses in your life, you want to see yourself moving up and to the right. As you get older, you want to achieve closer towards this, this goal that's up there at the top. We all have it. Whether you're Christian or not, I assure you. I can ask you, and in fact, I could ask you right now, what, last year, 2022, up and to the right, to the right and level, or to the right and down? I can ask you that question, and right away you reflect and you think, well, actually it was a quite good year. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming, but I ended up getting that promotion I didn't think I needed, and I wouldn't have told you that I lived for my career, but certainly whatever happened last year kicked it up and to the right. Or you might say, I never would have saw myself as a vain person, but we ran into some financial hardships, and it, it destroyed me destroyed me, and I've gone to the, to the right and down. What Jesus is saying, and what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom, is that what is most up and to the right for you is, is this kingdom, the kingdom that is, is most clearly seen in Jesus, that he is up and to the right, and that everything that you attain and that you achieve and strive for, these things are to push you up and to the right closer to Jesus, not away from Jesus, closer to him, push you towards him, push you uh, near where these things are under his control, where you find yourself uh, itching and, and pushing to join in his mission, to be with him. This is how citizens of the kingdom are to conduct themselves. So maybe by way of application, let me ask, where have you heard recently, or even now, Jesus say, follow me? Where is he uniquely calling you in your stage of life? Listen, I might be a pastor, but I wasn't called to raise your kids. I wasn't called to do your job. I wasn't called to have your neighbors. Nobody else was. Only you were. Where do you hear him saying, follow me? And where do you know what that means, but you're avoiding it? Maybe this week you should find a Christian friend and talk to them. Sense that the Lord's word is doing something in your life and it scares you. And commit these things to pray, prayer. This is how citizens of the kingdom are to conduct themselves. And now let's ask, and I'll be somewhat brief here. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? Let me reread verses 23 through 25. This is where we see what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he went through all of Galilee, teaching them, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing them of every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, it's interesting enough, if you put your thumb in this part of the Bible and you flip over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, you will get almost the exact same description of a summary of Jesus' ministry. And between these two summaries, almost like the ends of a book, what are we going to find? At this summary and the summary in chapter 9, we're going to find the Sermon on the Mount, and then we're going to find a series of healings that Jesus immediately comes and conducts. A Sermon on the Mount and healings. Teaching and healings. This shows us something, what it looks like to live life in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has said, repent. He's going to preach and teach on this over and over again to the people. But it doesn't stop there. This spiritual kingdom, whatever it is, this mysterious kingdom that somehow overlays our kingdom and can exist... <laughs> It, while the kingdoms of this world continue to move forward. Whatever it means for his kingdom to be experienced and tasted now, it includes people being healed, 
There's going to always be word and deed ministry in the life of Jesus. We're going to see this over and over again. And it shouldn't surprise us that the church is also going to be called to deal not only with calling people to repent of their sins, turn to Christ, we could say these spiritual things, but the church, no matter what, is going to find itself constantly involved in caring for tangible and physical needs of whatever city they find themselves in, whatever culture they find themselves in. In this passage, it seems like there is no sickness that is beyond Jesus. Every sickness that comes to him, he restores. And what he's doing by doing that is saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not just some psychological peace, knowing that your heart is right with God, that you're spiritually okay. When the kingdom of heaven comes down in fullness, and again, he's only inaugurating it. The fullness isn't yet to come, but he's giving us a preview. He's saying there will not be a sick body. There won't be one rogue cell. There won't be a broken bone. There won't be infections getting into your nervous system. He is the one who gives life, and where he is and where his kingdom is, there life abundance is found. And that is not just a metaphor. That is not just spiritualized away. His kingdom is a place where all that sin has ruined and broken and shattered, where sin has made life no good, filled with pain and thorns and thistles. As his kingdom rolls in, these things begin to be pushed back. There begins to be this world as the way in which things ought to be. We begin to taste of the very, very good life. This is, this is going to happen over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. He is the king not just of your souls or of your minds. He's the king who's come to embody this kingdom over bodies as well. To restore what the Hebrews were longing for, what they called shalom, this deep peace where we were in, in a very, uh, very real and tangible way at peace one with another, but also with creation itself. He's given us a preview of this, and he's saying, where my kingdom is, and when it comes in fullness, this is what it's going to be like. There won't be a sniffle. There won't be a cough. All will be made right when this kingdom comes in fullness. Now, again, Jesus brings this kingdom in preview form, and there's a heightened uh, healings that take place in this particular uh, moment in Jesus' life. And it's not as though the people of Galilee to this day still don't get sick. In fact, you can look it up online. There's plenty of doctor's offices in Galilee, ironically, that you can, you know, visit right now online when you're distracted from writing a sermon and you're bored on Google and you're searching for various things. Jesus is giving a preview. He's giving a, a down payment. He's showing us what it's going to look like when his kingdom comes in fullness, when he ushers it in fullness. For whatever reason, the timeline our Lord has chosen is that this fullness of the kingdom will be shown in preview form now. But he will, in his body, lead to that cross. And he'll die on that cross so that we can know all sins are atoned for. But he will also raise from the dead, be resurrected, and show us that a world is coming where death's dark shadow does not haunt us anymore. A world where aches and pains melt away, where youthful joys and bodies can be experienced with aging and wise minds. This is why the church, I'll just say this, is always at its best when it's had a vibrant diaconate. And what do we read in Acts? We read that the diaconate isn't able to do as many of these miraculous healings as Jesus. It seems as though they heighten for a season to emphasize the ministry of Jesus. But right away in Acts, what do we find? We read that there wasn't a poor person among them. Why is that? Because some miracle? Some way? Some money printing machine? No way. Because God's people said, where the kingdom is, there shouldn't be poor. They begin to live sacrificially, and everyone in the church had enough to eat. We find that the widows, the ones who are outcasts in society, very vulnerable. What do we find? The church says they're our responsibility. These widows in our church, we don't just preach to them the good news of the kingdom. We embody it by making sure that they have a meal to eat, making sure that they are taken care of, making sure that they are watched over. This is always the call of the Christian community. Word ministry 
proclaiming God's word, proclaiming the nearness of his kingdom, proclaiming forgiveness, but also deeds that embody, that say, listen, we will use our resources in this way because we know one day this is the way all will be. There won't be people suffering, wondering, ought they to take their life through medical uh, assistance? This is not going to be the case. And because it won't be the case, we're going to sit with them even if it bores us, even if it's hard. We'll sit with them in their dark days because we're going to say, listen, a day's coming. A day's coming where we won't hear about people's dark thoughts that they just can't get rid of. That day's coming. It's just around the corner. We can sit with you now. You know why? Because when the kingdom of heaven breaks in, we will hear no more of this. We'll hear no more of this. And we will do our best to embody that kingdom now. Listen, this passage is telling us this. That the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. And we ought to settle for nothing less. If all of life is lived out on this chart, on this graph, so many of us have limited our vertical axis. And we've said the highest point of life now is some sort of existential peace with our creator and a life of comfort or status or, or, or just enough wealth. This passage is telling you that if you're living life on that kind of axis, you're limiting yourself. You have a ceiling that needs to be blown away. The kingdom of heaven has come in Jesus. It's been inaugurated, and its fullness will come one day. And nothing short of a vision for and a longing for that kingdom, being a proper citizen in that kingdom, knowing the king should be what you live for. That day when, every, when we are nearest to Jesus and all is made right, sin is atoned for, evil is defeated, sickness is done away with, death is undone. What we have in this passage is a small picture of the church that Jesus will continue to grow. It starts with four fishermen who are going to serve as something of these first pastors. It starts with ministries that exemplify the kingdom of heaven spreading around Galilee and this little band of followers following around Jesus. And it's an invitation to you and to me to dream, to believe, and to hope that there will be a world much like our own. A world, though, where the kingdom of heaven is experienced in fullness. We can taste the forgiveness now. We can get glimpses of that kingdom to come and the occasions when the Lord blesses communities like ours with healings. But there's a day coming when the fullness of that kingdom will come. And this passage is telling us to rightly be citizens of that kingdom now is to live for that vision of the kingdom that is to come. Let me pray. Our Father, would you indeed bring your kingdom more clearly in our lives? Would your word indeed work in such a way that images and glimpses and tastes and previews of your kingdom might be seen all over the city, even this week, as the way we, in the way we interact with coworkers and the ways we come together in Christian fellowship and community and in the joy that we find welling up in our hearts? Make us into your kingdom, people, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.